I'm just going to talk about my own um, limited uh, experience in terms of uh, applying uh, historical learning to a very particular policy area, which is uh, uh, alcohol policy, which is the area that I now work in full time as research manager at Alcohol Research UK. Um, my kind of uh, background specifically in terms of this issue is, is really based around one book that I published in 2009 called The Politics of Alcohol, uh, A History of the Drink Question in, um, in England. And that was the kind of basis of the, of the, of the, the historical work that I uh, was asked to uh, contribute to the various forums that I'll talk about. Um, I'm just going to talk about three examples. Um, one is, is it's a national policy example, but I'll talk about it very briefly, which is when I uh, uh, appeared for the Health Select Committee during their inquiry on alcohol. Then I'll talk a bit more, more about a local uh, uh, project that I was involved in um, in the southwest of England. Um, and then a, a, a piece of work that followed directly from that in Scotland uh, with Alcohol Focus Scotland, which was, again, a slightly different but equally, I think, insightful example of how some of this historical work has, has, uh, has played out in the policy context. Um, I'll just start with this. Uh, I was talking to someone about this at a conference the, the other week, and we were suggesting we, need to, we should do a, a, a history of this graph. It wouldn't be a very long history, but for me, it's personally quite an interesting one. This was at the time I made this graph. In fact, my wife made it because I couldn't use Excel at the time. It was the only graph I'd ever made, and it's based on. Um, it was when I was doing my book. There's a brilliant um, history of uh, um, statistical analysis of, of, of alcohol uh, sales in the 19th century. It was published in 1940 by a, a statistician called George B. Wilson. And I realized no one had actually just put it into a spreadsheet and turned it into a graph, so I did that. Um, and it so happened that uh, when I was asked to appear before the Health Select Committee, and by the way, the reason I was asked to do that was I was part of an ESRC-funded network called Intoxicants in History. And they happened to say, when the Select Committee was set up, have you got anyone who can do kind of the general alcohol thing? And they said, well, we've got someone. And I happened to be available, so I went and, and, and spoke. It's, I think there's a lot of serendipity, actually, in these things. It was quite interesting, the experience of the day when I, when I went to the committee. It wasn't dissimilar to this um, in terms of size of it. And there was me. There was another uh, historical geographer called James Neal with me. And there were two um, uh, uh, kind of medical um, scientists um, there one social scientist, one medic. And uh, it was interesting because the committee would, would raise a question and they'd invite um, myself or James to answer. And when we were given the historical thing, I was looking up and looked around the room and lots of people would be nodding, really interested. Mm, it was interesting. But their pens were not being lifted into their hands at all. They were just nodding away, going, that's interesting. And then they speak to the, the, the uh, medical professional beside me. And as soon as he opened his mouth, they'd be going, writing down what he said. And me and James walked out and we both said to each other, it's really funny, isn't it? They seemed to be interested in what we were saying, but they didn't really want to do anything with it. Actually, surprisingly, as it turned out, the um, uh, opening chapter of the, of the report was a history chapter, and it, and it really used history heavily to try and talk about uh, alcohol, and it used this graph on the first page of it. And what I think is interesting about this graph, not that it's a great graph, is that um, it worked because it, it, told, it, told, it framed the policy issue, actually, in, in a very neat way, because what this said, it was a counterfactual, it said, uh, you're... The, the general assumption that drinking behaviours in Britain are on a, either a constant upwards curve or are always high is wrong. Actually, drinking consu consumption has gone up and down quite significantly over time. And that was kind of counterfactual enough to raise, people, uh, raise the committee's interest, but it also performed another role, another function uh, in policy terms. And that was that it allowed or it helped them uh, uh, create a, a, an, a, an argument, a narrative really, which said policy can affect culture. 
Now, one of the great arguments that runs around in the alcohol world is, oh, it's just culture. There's nothing you can do about it. Alcohol's just about culture. And now, what the committee, I think, was looking for, because they were politicians and they're looking to be useful, was some evidence that policy could do something about culture. And what this seemed to do, along with the other historical evidence that myself and James presented, was to uh, uh, kind of empower them to think, oh, actually, well, policy can make a difference. And then that allowed them to frame, actually, the committee report on this basis. And this is just one quote from that report, which reflected that uh, from the introduction. Uh, government has played a, s a significant role, positive and negative, for example, reducing consumption in the First World War, as well as stimulating the 18th century gin craze by encouraging the consumption of cheap gin. They're both partly true, partly not. It's much more complicated than that, but the, the, the general notion that, that policy has had an impact was one that I think went down well. Um, and it led to a, a kind of fairly assertive position being taken by the committee, which was uh, sum up, summed up here, which is in the past, Governments have had a large influence on alcohol consumption. Alcohol is no ordinary commodity, and in my world, that's a, a shibboleth, which, uh, for the public health perspective on alcohol, it's no ordinary commodity, and its regulation is an ancient function of government. And that is a, a clear political line that is being taken, and the justification for that, at least in part, is a historical framing, a historical narrative that they were able to draw out of some of the stuff that myself and James were saying. So that's one example of, I think, the way in which history there functioned for them, uh, partly in terms of uh, providing information, but I think possibly even more so in terms of providing a, a policy frame and a narrative for, the, for what they wanted to do. Um, anyway, uh, shortly after that, uh, I was uh, rattling around thinking, what should I do with this book now that I've done it? And uh, uh, the a uh, AHRC um, uh, released a grant program for knowledge transfer fellowships. And I, and I was interested in local delivery of alcohol policy anyway, and I just thought, I'll see if I can do anything with history and local alcohol policy. Um, so I applied. Uh, for that funder, and it just so happened, again serendipity really, that the government had launched an alcohol um, improvement programme in 2008, and what that involved was establishing regional alcohol managers around the country. And the, the regional alcohol, alcohol manager of the South West got in touch with me and said, I'm, I'm, I'm new in the post, I want someone just to give me the, the background, just give me the background to kind of alcohol stuff in the area. And out of this conversation, I mentioned this possible funding stream, and she was really interested in that. She said, that would be fantastic, let's work together, and let's try and see if we can bring stakeholders and policy people together in a kind of, within a historical frame, and use that frame as a way of getting them to talk about their own frontline experiences. But it seemed a bit of a long shot, but we got the funding, um, and we set up the program. I'll just put on the bottom of this slide, because it, it's partly relevant. The key indicator for the uh, alcohol improvement program and for the regional alcohol manager I was in partnership with was a reduction in hospital admissions. Now, there is a really long shot. Can history reduce hospital admissions? Um, <laughs> well, the answer is no before I go on to the next slide, but anyway. Um, what we did was we set up um, a number of regional workshops uh, around the Southwest. We, between us, with, with, with her contacts and with mine, we invited local licensing authorities, drug and alcohol partnerships, uh, uh, NHS, youth services, police, and I brought in uh, um, guest speakers from academia for each, each event. And what we did was we would have a, a, an introductory talk which would talk about the historical context of British drinking culture, that would talk about some of the policy history around it. And then we'd work in groups, there were whole day workshops with, with the, with the uh, uh, on each table, and people talk to each other about their own uh, activities and their own experiences. Um, and I think what happened in those, in those workshops uh, was that it allowed, looking at it from a historical perspective, allowed people to similarly actually look back at their own presuppositions and their own fixed positions and go, actually, hold on, mm, are they quite right? And once you've broken that, 
that ice, actually people started to be much more open in terms of talking about some of their other presuppositions and their other assumptions about the way that uh, alcohol policy could affect culture. Um, so again, I think what, what his, the historical context there to an extent provided a kind of a catalyst really, I think, a catalyst which allowed people to contextualize their own practices um, in a way that initially was historically minded but then became very practically minded. Um, anyway, the outcomes were we got very positive feedback indeed, actually, surprisingly positive feedback from the, from the, from the, from the workshops. Um, I, was, uh, I was just saying earlier, coincidentally, I, I got an email from the, the ex-regional alcohol manager yesterday about something completely separate. And I said I was coming here to, to give this talk, and I was going to be talking about that, that project, and I jokingly said, oh, and I bet the licensing, uh, statement licensing policy in Taunton has been deeply affected by the 1830 Beer Act. Um, not. And she actually emailed back very nicely and said, now it made a massive difference to the regional alcohol policy that, that those workshops were it was incredible. She may have just been being nice, but she said that, so I'm going to share it with you. We had a final report, it's been downloaded more than 500 times, incredibly, from the Southwest uh, Health Observatory and the Alcohol Learning Center websites. It definitely enhanced cross. I started to talk like I was, you can see how my language started to change there. It's enhanced cross-agency uh, conversation. It got lots of different stakeholders talking to each other and it gave them an excuse to talk to each other. It allowed them con to contextualize their policy work. Um, it, it, I think, aided their understanding of the, of the complexity of drinking cultures because in my world, the big thing you're up against is this idea that nothing ever changes, you can't do anything. And I think that's one, one of the places where history has a very particular kind of a purchase on that in terms of saying, well, no, actually, 1933, you know, consumption levels were low, uh, you know, uh, licensing was very different, harms were much lower. Why did they go up? Why did they go down? And they become relevant pol policy questions. Did it reduce the number of alcohol-related emissions? I've already answered that. Well, not as far as I can tell. It may have done. Who knows? I doubt it. So uh, the final example I'll just quickly give is on, uh, on the back of that, actually, I was contacted by uh, Evelyn Gillen, who's the Chief Executive Alcohol Focus Scotland, and she'd heard about the project, and she phoned me. She said, oh, that sounds really interesting. Do you fancy doing something similar up in Scotland? We're doing a big piece of work around licensing up here. We want to try and reframe licensing, uh, and we, we're going to set up an expert workshop. Would you come up and speak to that workshop as the kind of historian uh, for that? So I was invited up to a workshop in June 2011, um, uh, uh, and also to speak at their national licensing conference in September of that year. Now, the thing that uh, seemed to go down particularly well in that workshop, which then appeared in the policy document, which I'll show you in a second, and according to uh, Evelyn, uh, is the thing that when they speak to politicians, they, they really latch onto, was again, this kind of uh, 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 key kind of message, take-home message, elevator pitch, however you want to put it, which was, and it was not unknown, it's not like I dug this out, I just happened to mention in the course of my report that a Royal Commission on Licensing in Scotland in 1931 wrote, a younger generation is growing up, to which as a whole, any resort to alcohol excess as a necessary usual practice is almost totally unknown. Now that, in a Scottish perspective, was completely counterfactual, it was completely counterintuitive. Um, and I think that's, why it worked because again it allowed people to a question their own assumptions about the way that drinking cultures work and b ask what was the policy context which which led to that what was the economic and social context as well of, of course um, and can does that demonstrate that policy interventions because there were some quite significant ones at the time can change culture so i think this was quite a, a rare example where saying no it's more complicated than you think worked but i think the reason it worked was not because people went oh great 
complexity, but because actually it said, oh, interesting, a different frame for the policy narrative. This actually talk is about now cultural change responding to policy. That's something we can get our teeth into and we can try and uh, act on. So uh, again, uh, quite <laughs> boiled down parts of what I was doing, turning into the bits that, that got uh, uh, mileage. So the policy outcome of that, well, they, uh, Alcohol Focus Scotland wrote this report, Rethinking Alcohol Licensing, which had a historical chapter in it. Um, it had 14 recommendations for policy. Um, last year, oh, sorry, in 2010, no, quite a few years ago now. Well, I got the date wrong on that. Um, the Scottish Government launched a consultation on further options. Sorry, actually, it's late, it's late, it's late, it's meant to say 2012. Launched a, a, a consultation on further options for alcohol licensing. That consultation document explicitly relies very heavily on rethinking alcohol licensing as, as its kind of frame for where alcohol, uh, uh, licensing should go. Um, now, that's not because of the historical stuff that I did. It's because it's a very detailed and well thought through uh, document. But um, I think from the reports I get back from Evelyn is that, is that when they're selling it to politicians, they, they use the historical stuff quite uh, extensively. Uh, also, let's... Uh, I just turned it into a journal publication as well, which is quite handy. So that's because there was very little written on Scottish licensing history, amazingly. Uh, so uh, what's that mean? Well, what do I do now? Well, I've obviously moved out of a direct involvement in academia now, although I'm associated with the London School of Hygiene. Um, but my, my, in my main job, I kind of go around and I, and I talk to different stakeholders and different groups and different... Uh, and Often it's not the history stuff that I do because I'm involved much more widely in the research field in alcohol, but I'm often called in to do the history bit, if I can put it that way, by people. Which in one sense sounds a bit like, oh, I'll stick on a historian and get the interesting history bit. But actually it's quite often people who really want to have a contextualising frame for the debate they're going to have. Um, and I've done that at uh, national policy conferences, national uh, networks, stakeholder workshops, uh, seminars. I put the Guild of Beer Writers there because I was asked to speak to the Guild of Beer Writers about four months ago in a gastropub on the White uh, Horse in Parsons Green in London. That was the most scary thing I've ever done because beer historians are beer nerds and they're history nerds. So I was just, it was a minefield. Um, I got away with it, but only by being really circumspect about everything that I said. Um, uh, so I, I, I often am called in to give those, and they're often, again, sometimes it's people nodding, they're interested and they don't really pick stuff up. Sometimes people pick things up. Um, since then, I worked uh, uh, recently in the last year with the Local Government Association on licensing. I've been called to speak to a few PCCs around the country that set up conferences on alcohol harms. They've wanted me in. Advocacy groups quite like the historical stuff because, again, it gives them a purchase on culture change. Academic research teams, I work quite a bit with the Sheffield, well, I've done some work now with the, with the Sheffield Alcohol Group who do a lot of economic modelling and perspective stuff. But actually, I think they find it quite useful to be able to bring contextual stuff into that as well because it rounds out that evidence. Um, so, uh, kind of, I think the point is, well, there's a couple of points to conclude with on that. One is, and this is a pr probably not accurate quote, but what I remember from an email that David Harrison, who was the uh, clerk to the Health Select Committee, in his invitation to me to come and speak, he said, I remember it, he said, alcohol policy is an area to which history is often appealed, but rarely accurately. And I think that's a very, very true thing. It's true in lots of other fields as well, clearly technological history also. Uh, he happened to be a historian, uh, again, serendipity. Um, but bringing history into it is actually something that people aren't resistant to in my, in, in, in my field. They like it because they like to talk about the Brits and drink. Um, what does history do? Well, it provides context and it raises interest. That's all very good and touchy-feely and very warm. People like it. But I do think it does other things, uh, uh, some of the stuff David's talked about. But in my experience in terms of 
the small amounts of impact that I, might, I may have had along the way. It's generally, in my case, been, I think, an empowering thing in that it's allowed policy actors to challenge the plus ça change narrative of British drinking, which I think is an extraordinarily powerful policy narrative. Uh, and it's all cultural, which is also very powerful, especially for the drinks industry who want to prevent uh, uh, regulation. They say it's all culture, you can't do anything with regulation. Um, so what's the key impacts of my own uh, work in this so far? I think it's primarily not so much explaining what policies work or how the details work. It's a really much broader framing thing, which is say that policy can make a difference to culture. It has made a difference to culture, and therefore it can, it can do that again. So um, I think that's been about it. Okay, thanks.